how many Dolly Partons make up for 500, uh, let's call them January 6th rioters? That's Marilyn Nelson, a nationally recognized poet, author, professor. She's also a past poet laureate for the state of Connecticut. I'm Isabel Barber, and I'd like to welcome you to WPKN's Mic Check, which comes to you on WPKN every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Our diverse roster of hosts presents a wide range of topics for discussion, focusing on global, national, and regional issues and their effect on our local community. Just as the phrase mic check mobilizes people to create a human microphone during public demonstrations and protest actions, this weekly program amplifies our community's many voices and brings them to the airwaves. This show will also be posted on WPKN's podcast site. Mic check is followed on WPKN at 6 p.m. by the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I got to speak with Marilyn Nelson and others about the Witness Stones project happening in Old Lyme, Connecticut. A growing number of Connecticut towns, including Guilford, Madison, Greenwich, Suffield, and West Hartford, have worked in collaboration with the Witness Stones project to install in their communities small plaques that commemorate individuals who were once enslaved. And research and education and civic engagement is used as a way to uh, bring community members into the conversation and really document um, what happened in these communities with an eye towards really honoring the humanity of people who were enslaved. So why this story now? I wanted to share this story today on January 1st. Happy New Year, everybody. Because I've been thinking a lot about how hard it is to move forward without accurately naming what came before. Whether we're trying to move forward from old patterns or make amends for past wrongs. If we can't be truthful with ourselves and with one another about what really happened, how do we set a foundation for moving forward? This question is really on point for the community of Old Lyme, a place where talking about the existence of racism is still really contentious. A group of partners, including the First Congregational Church of Old Lyme, the Florence Griswold Museum, the Phoebe Griffin Noyes Library and the Lime Old Lime Schools got together to forward this work. Marilyn is one of three people that you'll hear from today. To start us off, we have Reverend Laura Fitzpatrick Nager, Senior Associate Minister of the First Congregational Church of Old Lime. The project really emerged, a number of us uh, have been aware of the Witness Stones project that emerged in Guilford back in 2017. The historian in town there, Dennis Culleton, who was inspired by the Witness Stones 
project that was undertaken out of Berlin, the Sulperstein project, where they were memorializing people who had been killed in the Holocaust. In the United States, the Witness Stones Project focuses on excavating from the historical record the names and stories of enslaved people. The project is both about history and thinking about how history and slavery has shaped a community. And tossing around the idea of how might we do that here in Old Lyme. And then when the tragedy, the the murder of George Floyd happened, and we uh, were intensifying our awareness and communal efforts as a as a church to try to address systemic racism in in our midst. And Carolyn Wakeman had been doing a lot of work on on local evidence of slavery here in in Old Lyme. And so we talked about how could we make this happen. And so we were able to collaborate with other organizations in town, uh, the Phoebe Noyes Griffin Library and the Museum, Florence Grizzle Museum, our church, and then the school system, uh, Region 18 here in town. And it really unfolded from there. Essential to this unfolding was the work of Carolyn Wakeman. Carolyn is a retired professor from the University of California, Berkeley. Her family has lived in Old Lyme for 11 generations. Carolyn retired to Old Lyme and has been researching the fate of enslaved people in the region for over 10 years. Growing up here, I had no idea that there were ever enslaved persons or anyone African-American living in a community which now, and also when I went to school here in the 1950s, was almost exclusively white. So I realized when I came back, when I retired and came back after working in a lot of different um, communities and countries, that I was looking at a place that I thought I knew, but I was looking at it for the first time. So Carolyn got busy. She scoured the historical record for personal details about enslaved people. And it's very hard to find those details. Um, They exist in a number of places. We can find them in a few emancipation declarations, proclamations, statements, um, certificates that were issued by the town. And so it's a matter of really um, scouring the documents, family letters, and all kinds of, um, of evidence from the past to try to see where we can find traces of those who were enslaved. So it's not easy. It exists in lots of places, and it takes a lot of painstaking work to pull it all together. Some of the benefactors of Carolyn's work were middle school students at the Old Line Public Schools. He worked with two seventh grade teachers, the, the social studies teacher and the language arts teacher, and together they put together a six week project uh, that happened at the end of the school year that engaged those students in the curriculum materials that I provided, which were primary documents. So we were asking these young kids to take a look at an emancipation certificate and read it for themselves and see what they saw. And out of that came this remarkable um, poetry contribution that the language arts students provided, which was uh, a number of seventh grade students writing their own poems about the people who had been enslaved. We did the installation here in town uh, last June. Let's take a second to talk about what exactly was installed. 
Here again is Carolyn Wakeman. The wooden stones are small four by four inch brass plaques inscribed with the name of an enslaved person. And a few of the details that we've been able to gather about that enslaved person's life. The brass plaque is attached to a cement cube and that cement cube with the brass plaque attached is um, installed in the ground, level with the ground. So what you see when you look at a witness stone is a small brass plaque. Hopefully it's quite shiny and bright. And you see in the grass in front of you, the name of a formerly enslaved person who lived here in this case, and who lived and worked on the street that we now know as Lime Street, which is the main street through our community. The installation ceremony took place on June 4th, 2021. It was well attended by old Lyme residents. The school children were there. Reverend Laura Fitzpatrick Nager spoke. Carolyn Wakeman spoke. And Marilyn Nelson led the crowd in a call and response through the names of the enslaved people that were being celebrated on that day. We'll be working through those names as well. We have the opportunity to speak the names of 14 people who lived along this street and worked right here and died right here. So I'm going to read each name and then ask you to repeat it. Louis Louia. Louis Louia. Humphrey. Humphrey. I had some questions for Reverend Laura and Carolyn Wakeman about what it was like to work on this project as white women in a mainly white community. As two white women, did you feel a sense of responsibility for this work or project, or how did your identity shape your thinking about it? I I, have, I, I worked with that. I, I thought about that, sat with that. And the, the most direct way in the last year was working with Marilyn Nelson and Rhonda Ward and um and Kate Russian and Antoinette Brimbell, these remarkable women who have brought poetry and the arts to their own constituencies, their own lives, their own communities in, in ways that uh, have been profoundly important. And always to ask them the question of how they saw an individual, a situation, an enslavement um, um, circumstance that I might be about to write about that I wanted to just be sure uh, that they would view it, that I wasn't viewing it in a way that, that would be different from their own, um, from their own approach or their own ideas. And through that collaboration, and again, Laura's talked about the process of collaboration with organizations and institutions, but the collaboration with the, with the poets was really terribly important, not just to, um, not just to what it was that I wrote, but how we conceived of this entire project. I am Marilyn Nelson. I, um, have been a member of Laura's church for oh some years. I already knew a lot of the history of Old Lyme because I had written a chapbook's worth of poems about the history of the church. So for me, it just seemed like turning and opening another door into 
into this very rewarding um, story. And then um, I thought, well, it would be kind of stingy of me not to share this story uh, with other poets who would find it as rewarding as I've found it. So I um, contacted three other African-American poets who live in the state and asked them if they would be interested in signing on to work together with me on this, on this project, which I knew at that point very little about. All of the poets that Marilyn worked with are incredibly notable, gifted artists. Um, I wanted to just add that Antoinette Brimbell is Connecticut's uh, current state poet laureate. Samuel Freeman. Carolyn Wakeman helped to orient the poets by sharing primary research and taking them to places where some of the enslaved people were buried. Cato. And the four of them worked together with me with the information that I provided them about the people who had lived in this town in enslavement. And they wrote the most remarkable series of, uh, of poems. Sometimes we may have just a death date, for example, about Cato the young boy owned by Jonathan Parsons, the minister. That's all we know, just his death date and his age. The church records tell us that. So how do we imagine his life? And and it would be Marilyn and um, and Ron Cade and Antoinette who would be able to bring to that question something that I, I wouldn't be able to do. Temperance still. Temperance still. In, in the Witness Stone's poems, for, for example, I wrote the first, I wrote four poems about a woman named Temperance who was born in about 1720. And I wrote the first two without, before I knew anything about what happened to her later in the life, in her life. And um, for that, I was, I was confronted with a copy of a document in which Temperance signed away her future to be a slave. She was um, half Native American, so it was not legal for her to be a slave for life. No one could enslave her for life without her permission. So there is this document where she signs an X saying that she's signed away all of her future, basically, and her children and their future in, in order to become the property of this man. I'm looking at this and thinking, what in the world could convince this woman to sign away her life? And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And it finally occurred to me that it must have been, a, this must be a love story. And that she had done this for love. There's just no other way of, of understanding it. And then I discovered, after I had decided that, I discovered that I, I, there was another document in the church history um, in which the week after Temperance signed that document. She was married 
to an enslaved man who belonged to the man who now owned temperance. Caesar. Caesar. Arabella. Arabella. Old Lyme is 91% white and has had a history of resisting approaches like affordable housing, which would have diversified the community. I had some questions for Reverend Laura, for Carolyn Wakeman, and for Marilyn Nelson about what it was like to forward this project in this community. I asked specifically about any challenges and barriers. Um, One of the barriers was that we needed the consent of the Historic District Commission and of the property owners. And uh, there was some dissent. Uh, We did have um, two people who spoke uh, at the Historic District Commission meeting uh, about their concern about property values, that if there was a plaque placed in the grass in front of their house, one of the homes was historic homes was at at that time for sale, the property owner was concerned and the real estate person was concerned that it might lower the property value. Jack Howard. Jack Howard. For many decades now, our church has had the opportunity to to stand up where we we feel called to do that. Uh, whether it has to do with South Africa or uh, Palestine or Greengrass, South Dakota, or more locally with affordable housing, and with you know what is it about the fact that we we live in a town that has not only this history of chattel slavery and uh, white supremacy, but that we continue to need to face the racial inequities right in our very midst. Nonetheless, we are on this journey to speak, I'll speak for myself, but I I think as a church to, to be better allies. So our work in immigration our work in doing what we can towards affordable housing so we we can work on anti-racism in every aspect of of what we're doing. Three years ago, maybe a little longer than that, affordable housing, affordable housing project was struck down and voted against. And it it brought out a lot of uh, division ugliness, pushback, not in my backyard stuff that was was really hard to to face. And then last fall, really for the past uh, couple of years, this um, letter addressing, addressing racism as a public health crisis. The letter that she's talking about is a resolution declaring racism as a public health issue. This has been signed by many communities in Connecticut and some around the nation. Many have been working to to try to pass that letter. And there was a meeting with the board of selectmen in town with a time for public comment. And it, it was a very painful evening. I don't think this town is systemically racist. should be labeled as such that. And I think some people in this room are labeling people as being racist when they're not. And you're going to automatically label us racist because it's the thing to do. I know someone 
who is on the board of selectmen, who has grandchildren that are black. So you can't say they're racist. So is, is part of it, you know, by naming things truthfully, by naming our history truthfully, that we're trying to bridge with other people. We're trying to bridge with the people that live here now. I'm thinking about, you know, the witness stones in Germany and, and where, where this idea came from uh-huh. originally, right? And kind of the idea of truth and reconciliation, the idea of being accountable. So truth and reconciliation, absolutely essential underlies everything that we do. It's a, it's an underlying principle um, because we are telling the truth and we are coming to embrace a past that we never recognized uh, before. So will this lead us forward? You know, we can't answer that question, but 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 I, I I think I think the answer is yes. I think if we look back, we do see a steady change in understanding with all the backward steps that we've seen over the last, especially in the last a uh, couple of years, which have been pronounced and um, and, and have dismayed so many of us. Um, nevertheless, we have to find a way to try to address um, the, the the causes of of those um, of those what I see and what many people see as steps backward. Loose, loose. All of American history can also teach people to do. What Mr. Rogers' mother said we should do, and that is look for the helpers. And it's time that we start looking for the helpers and honoring the helpers, the ones who were not ordinary. It was ordinary to be evil. It's always ordinary. It's easy to be evil. That's the banality of evil, isn't it? It's harder to stand up even in small ways. You know, seeing a character that you think, well, gosh, I I hope that if I were in a situation, I wouldn't be the ordinary lemmings of running to the edge of the cliff. I would be one of the ones who saved somebody. Pompey Freeman. I think Laura touched a little earlier on the importance of extending, continuing, deepening the conversation. And that's one way in which we're, we're trying to do this. How do we, um, how do we keep the conversation going, going? How do we deepen it? How do we draw more participants into it? How do we make talking about racism easier and less confrontational? Nancy Freeman. Nancy Freeman. This is a multi-year project, and uh, we are looking ahead to this coming June. 
We have permission from the historical district to uh, for six more stones for right now. And so Carolyn and other helpers with the research are looking at who else will we be honoring in, in this next phase. Hopefully, conversation will continue around this in different ways, that the witness stones doesn't happen in isolation with what is going on you know, right now, currently in our, in our country. As of now, there are 30 witness stones in Old Lyme, Connecticut. You can look at a map of the town where the, and where the stones are placed if you go to witnessstonesoldlime.org. The operatic song that you heard earlier was sung by Lisa Williamson on February 20th of 2022. It was recorded at a church service dedicated to the Witness Stones at the First Congregational Church of Old Lyme. You can find out more about the Witness Stones project in Old Lyme by visiting witnessstonesoldlime.org. Well, that's it for our time today. I hope that you have a great new year. And also, feel free to send me comments about what you think about these pieces, or if you know of groups forwarding racial equity in your area, um, if you're doing work like that, send me an email. You can reach me at ibwpkn at gmail.com. Thanks.